Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode or the first episode of the Green Dragon podcast. Um, after we had our pilot, the last episode, um, I'm joined once again by Tiernan. Hello. Uh, we have Matt at the end of the table again. Howdy. And we're joined by a new voice. I would say face, but this this is sort of radio, so we don't have faces. But it, nonetheless, we're joined by Jeremy. Hello. Who is a painting extraordinaire. That's to right. Put it, to put it lightly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I suppose well, most of the listeners would already have um, got a little bit of the lowdown on myself, Matt, and T. But what about yourself, Jeremy? Um what got you into the game and what aspects of the game do you sort of love the best? I've got into the game during the first movies. So I think I bought my first set just before The Fellowship of the Ring came out. Um, before that, I played um, Warhammer 40,000 and some Warhammer Fantasy. Went on to Lord of the Rings and, and gave up on the other systems because I liked it so much. I enjoy playing the scenarios, acting out the, the stories. Um, and I also enjoy the modeling and painting side of it. So. I've got quite a few models painted up and uh, looking to finish off the collection at some point over the next year. You speak of your collection and I will pretty much put it out there. You've pretty much got everything. Is there anything that you don't have? Um, Cause I, we briefly had a, a thing about we know a guy that has just about every model in the game. Yeah. But I, we weren't sure if it really was every model in the game. Well, I remember you saying, uh, or being really surprised uh, when I pointed out that there was an alternate Hummer sculpt. Yes. And I believe you were uh, jumping around in glee saying um, saying that you had an, a, mor- uh, a model that Jeremy didn't have. Well, I suppose it's time to ask Jeremy. Do you have the alternate Hummer sculpt? I've got one of them. I'm not sure if I've got both of them. I'll have to check that. There's one where he's holding his sword and one he's got his arms sort of out as if he's holding someone back. And then there's the one where he's... Uh, Got sort of one hand down, sort of a sword gambling. Yeah, um, I think there was one that came out in a like a the, the battle games in Middle Heroes. Earth. Okay, no, I've got so the battle games in Middle Earth one. I don't I have think the, that was one. the one I had. Yep, there's so one. Jeremy has the alternate sculpt, but not the normal sculpt. There's one that came out in a Helm's Deep uh, sort of at ease poses box, and I never got that one. So the poses from that uh, I don't have. Uh. I don't have the breaking of the fellowship poses, but other than that. I should be able to locate most of the other stuff. Interesting. Well, obviously you said, um, just before you said, uh, you're a big fan of scenarios, which incidentally, and this was not planned at all, um, our top, a couple of our topics for today is we're going to go over some rules questions in the second half of this podcast. But to start us off, we're going to sort of talk about scenarios a little bit more in depth than we did uh, before. Uh, more about um, how to approach playing a scenario because scenarios is... We, we pretty much came to an unanimous conclusion. Scenarios are probably the best way to play this game. It, this game is built so much around the heroes and the skirmish aspect that scenarios just, that's where the game shines. And some people find it a bit intimidating to sort of pick up a book and go, I need these specific models. I suppose, Jeremy, how would you get around that sort of thing? How would you be able to sort of look at a scenario and go, I really want to do that? But how would you approach actually getting to the end point, which is playing that scenario? Most of the times, um, we started off playing scenarios by proxying most of the models in there to try them out. So we might have had uh, the Fellowship fighting their way through, and we might not have had all the models at that point, so stand-ins were fine. Basically putting down some terrain roughly in the shape of the suggested board, getting the, some models that can replace them and, and having a go at them. Some of the scenarios real, really appeal to, to people. Others are not quite as fun. But uh, basically proxy try out, do do 
start off small. Don't don't do the big ones to start with. Start off with ones with maybe the fellowship or Thorin's company, and just give them a try. Cool. You guys ain't got anything else? Like I know, uh, Matt, you've played a couple of scenarios um, with us, and same with you, Tin. And but other than that, you haven't guys haven't really sort of played any of those scenarios like outside of sort of our, our, our club group. Why do you think that is? Why? What sort of shies you away from playing scenarios? Well, I think uh, most people you find in gaming stores and come up against aren't really prepared for that or, yeah. you know, there's not always the right terrain. You, you can try and get it in the right shape, as, as Jeremy said, but you don't always uh, have some of the things that you need. And, you know, you can't just rock up to a store and play that scenario unless you're fully prepared and you've got everything you need for it um, with someone who, you know, doesn't have that stuff. Yeah, and I, I don't know about uh, other people, but I know I find I have uh, about half of the participants for one force, and or there's just those um, odd models which are just you know awkward to proxy, or yeah, I just don't mm. have enough. Like that one last alliance scenario with the 240 orcs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's a ridiculous example. That's, that's a, that's <laughs> we a talked about scenario. that last time. Is it? Now, I wasn't sure about the numbers. Do you reckon that between our circuit, do you reckon we have enough orcs to run it? Yeah. Because we've got all the good side. Do we have enough orcs? How many orcs is it? 240. Yeah, I've like, got 140 myself. Not painted. Not painted. We want painted I, I think so. Painted. Like, most people can pull about 40 or so painted ones. Yeah. And if you get six to eight people together, I think you could easily run that. Yeah. Uh, I think I could pull in around 60. Yeah. And you can use Moranon orcs or something like that as well as proxies. So I think we could quite... Maybe that's something you should... So why are we recording? Let's go play. <laughs> that's a very valid point indeed. Why aren't we playing? We'll get into some games later on today. Um, Matt, you mentioned that um, you sort of need to bring everything yourself with a scenario. Do you think if you want to play scenarios, you need to go out of your own way to get them done? Or Yeah, I think you, you probably do. Do you, do yeah. you think that you could possibly find a, another like-minded gamer who you can basically go split half and half to do it. Well, that's the best case scenario, isn't it? If you can yeah. find someone who both, you know, wants to play a scenario and hopefully wants to play the same scenarios that you do, there you go. You both <laughs> split it. You get one force each or you do a little bit of each force, each of you. Yeah, and I mean, that requires quite a bit of preparation, though. Yeah. And I think that's the main thing against it as opposed to points matches, which is all you need to do is bring, um, bring your army. Then you can have whatever terrain's around and it doesn't matter what your opponent has. So it's all about preparation. Yeah. But the points matches can lead into that as well. Travis and I have, um, oh, yeah, definitely. through for the last couple of years, I've been putting together quite a sizable Harrod force, and Travis has been putting together a Dol Amroth force. So it's sort of natural for us to look at the, the old Palinor Fields book and have a look mm. at the scenarios. And we've got the models all painted that between us now, so we yeah, can play true. through that, and that happens. And then there's a maybe one or two bits of terrain, which is really nice to just motivate you to put it together and and have some more terrain for the collection. You yeah. raise another, another really good point here, Jeremy, with, with, the, with the terrain. Obviously, with scenarios, usually a, a set in a very specific spot, um, Barlin's Tomb with the Fellowship, um, on hand with uh, the Seeing Seat, Osgiliath, um, ba Barrels, barrels out, out of Bond, yeah. needing a, a giant river. These terrain features, it's like some people I know have amazing, massive collections, but these terrain features is sort of the nail in the coffin for them, the reason why they don't. Do you guys have any like sort of suggestions or ways of sort of basically getting yourself motivated to make those terrain? Like, is there any tricks or tips you guys have to basically approach a project like that? Probably the 
best thing you need is a scenario that you really, really want to play. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. barrels out of bomb for one was was the selling point for Jeremy last uh, couple of weekends ago when he brought that in for us. Which, by the way, amazing scenario. Yeah, it we was went a really into nice scenario. depth about that <laughs> on, in the in the in the pilot. But um, well, Jeremy, you made barrels out of bond. Yep. And in what three days was it? Three or two days? Yes, yes. Well, I was on holiday then, so it's. Um, uh, I suppose. Can you give us sort of um, a rundown of how you managed how you managed to get that sort of board done so quickly? Okay. Um, that scenario, I was. It's one of my favourite sort of scenes from the old Hubbard book that I read as a kid. So I really wanted to put that together. I got a preview of the scenario in the the White Dwarf magazine. Yeah. So I had a rough idea of how many models I needed. So once I got that all sorted, I just needed to make sure I had a river feature board. I'm lucky enough that I've made some trees with dowel bases. Yep. So they can be plugged into any scenario. So already I've got some trees and rocks that can fit into any scenario. Mm. For that one, the main thing I needed was a big river. Initially, I was going to do some maybe a rollout sheet. So a, a bit of sort of like rubberized cardboard or something like that to, yeah. to just roll out a mat or a bit of felt or a small bit of MDF in parts and put down on top of an existing board. Um, but then I actually found out it was probably easier for me to just grab some sheets of MDF from uh, Bunnings, yep. chop them up. I've got four separate uh, two-foot-by-three-foot sections. Yep. I put another three-mil MDF on top of that, cut out basically a negative image of the river, so it's just the land area, yep. and screwed that down on the board. And then all I had to do was just get some texture paint from, once again, from Bunnings, which is our hardware store, Yep. And then color it, and it didn't take very long at all, really. Once you included the drying, mm. it was just well, a matter of you got it down done. And you started what Thursday was it, and then had it ready for us on Saturday. So yes, amazing turnaround. I, I think you can pretty much easily sort of. Um, <laughs> yeah. For, for those of us without Jeremy's skills in uh, making boards, or for those of us who don't have the room or whatever reason, th there are quite a few companies which do make uh, pre-made terrain. Yep. Which usually can be quite nice. It's not always on the same uh, scale, so yeah. uh, it, it would be very hard to find a river wide enough to do barrels out of bond. But for some of the more of the simpler stuff, such as you know trees, rocks, and yeah, yeah, some, some basic buildings, ruins. Even I know there's a yeah. number of companies that have ruins as just a whole bunch of them. I'm thinking Battlefield in the Box is a, is a really good example here as well. Yeah, yeah. so, so you can uh, get those and that, that cuts down making it yourself and just makes things a bit easier generally. I think if you're going to buy that sort of thing, also make sure that you're really sure that you want it before you purchase it Yeah, and make sure that it's going to work with the game yeah. because I know I ordered some trees online once and they, they weren't very good at all and I couldn't even use them so I ended up just pulling all the leaves off and using them on some bases instead. They weren't on the same scale? Uh, yeah, they were a little bit too small, and, and uh, frankly, they just weren't very good quality at all. Yeah, yeah, that is one issue when you're buying from um, other companies, is the scale. You, you, you need to um, go out of your way to find out what scale they are. Because I, I know of uh, some people who have bought terrain or various models with the intent to convert them, and they've just been a completely wrong scale. So I, I think sort of the lesson we can sort of pull out of this is do your research. It doesn't take a lot of effort, especially now with everything being computerized and stuff and most stores having online marketplaces. Just go on, have a look around, double check your, double check the sizes and stuff because I've, even myself, I've got an entire Rohan village that we pull out when we do some of the Rohan-based scenarios and stuff like Burning Village and stuff 
they're not that hard to make. I know for a fact that um my Rohan villagers gift boxes are used as sort of the bare and bones for the models, and then I've just gone around with balsa wood and paddle pop sticks and made basically slats of wood, and it came out really damn well. And the only sort of really sort of I would suppose skillful piece of material that was a bit hard to sort of track down was the fake fur but even then a trip to spotlight or or those one of those sorts of stores that sell our fabric and stuff you can probably pick one up i think it mostly comes down to time effort and inclination yeah would you go would you guys agree with that as well oh definitely I think you can get a lot out of a surprisingly small amount of effort. I think if you set aside the time, if you have the right tools, if you don't have yeah. them, borrow them. As long as you, you put that aside, I think terrain is one of the best things you can make for any wargaming setup. So I think putting yep. putting some time aside once, twice a year to, to make build up your terrain collection, I think is, yes, it's it's effort, but it's incredibly worth the effort, and it's not really as much as you would think. Just on that as well, you're saying um, you talked about terrain and sort of, sort of building that up. It's one thing that sort of I've noticed a bit with um, Lord of the Rings is sort of a, almost a bit of a bare bones sort of feel with the terrain. Do you think Lord of the Rings benefits from having lots of terrain? Because I know in the scenarios it shows lots of terrain, lots of big iconic features. I'm thinking of Skilliath for one. Some of those scenarios are crammed pack full of terrain. I'm thinking a Harad scenario that even in Harad, which is a desert, it still had tents across the entire board and some of those other scenarios as well some of the newer ones as well have a lot of trees and forests and stuff do you think you we should be trying to fill out the terrain as it's shown in the books do you think we need more terrain for all lord of the rings or do you think the amount of terrain we have at the moment sort of floating around is, is enough well i think once you've played on a board that has a lot of terrain and that it's it's well spaced well constructed board you look at some boards and you go that just needs more yeah. It, it, you do find that you want quite a lot of terrain for Lord of the Rings, I think. Yeah, well, Lord of the Rings is a... Uh, sorry, Hobbit now. Hobbit, yeah. Is um, <laughs> a skirmish game. So you can... Yeah, more terrain means you can uh, do more fancy stuff. But uh, you, you do need to make sure you've got enough room in between buildings so that, uh, you know, those trolls and stuff can actually fit through. Because mm. nothing sucks more than to find out, oh, my troll can't fit through that gap just... Yeah. Uh, uh, it's going to take me four turns to walk around this big building. I suppose that's, that's another th- thing for any TOs listening as well. If Before the, the game, check to see what the biggest base model in your tournament is, like be it a dragon or a troll base. Or a mumuk. Yeah, or a mumuk. Um, go around with that base and fit it, try to fit it in between the spaces between buildings and terrain features to make sure that you can fit. And if you're deliberately trying to make an area where those sorts of creatures can't make fit through make it obvious like don't make the gap like a millimeter short like actually make the gap obvious that a troll's not going to fit through there yeah i I agree completely (laughs) we're just talking about terrain as well here what are some really simple stuff you can do terrain wise because i know everyone at this table i'm pretty sure has tried their hand at making terrain what's some simple easy stuff that the guys listening could pretty much do in an afternoon and then paint it the next day. Probably walls and fences was one of the easiest ones, yeah. I know I've made a couple of hedges fairly recently that were very easy. Just a bit of lock all over them. Well, Jeremy, you've made, I, I would go out on a limb here and say, a lot of terrain but, uh, over, uh, over the years. Definitely going um, out on a limb there. I'm looking at three crates that you've brought in already. 
what are some simple stuff that you can do to to basically liven up your board that you can make quick, easily, sort of in an afternoon or a day that can people can easily sort of pick up from listening? Ideally, you want some sort of difficult terrain. So an area, maybe a piece of MDF or a coaster or something like that, get that and put something to make the terrain difficult to break it up. So whether it's some hedges, whether it's some ruins, whether it's some rocks that you find in the garden or yep. anything like that, put that on the base, make sure it's sturdy, make sure your model can balance on it, or if you don't want the models to balance on it, make it so it's impossible, so pointy or yep. something like that. And just get a, a collection of them. Don't just make one, make, make 12 in one sitting, because if you've got the materials... You can probably get it in bulk and just go make make a rocky area. So yep. some some random shaped uh, bases, MDF, some some rocks, either garden stones or slate yep. or something like that. Glue it down, get the, the PVA or a hot glue gun, glue it down, flock it, base it, and away you go. You've got some really nice terrain. And then the next time you might do some trees or you might do some ruins or you might do some rivers or something like that. But just add... Add one type each time and make sure it's ideally the floating island terrain. So you've got your board, if you're starting out, make it make it flexible. So you can just plonk it on top of your table and you've got the terrain there and you can use it for most things. Oh, I suppose with that, when you mentioned floating island terrain, it's sort of like uh, with Games Workshop with the sort of some of the newer stuff they're doing. It's not fi- like big fixed pieces of terrain. Sometimes they're a bit clunky. I'm not sure if you guys would agree with no, no totally agree. Smaller can often be better. Yeah. yeah. The reason why we say sort of smaller and lots of terrain is you can move it around and change it. So you're not playing on the same board. As great as sort of modular boards are that sort of click together or, or one big 4x4 four four that you model spectacularly, as great as those can be, sometimes you get more replay value out of having a building or some rock features or forest that you can spin and turn around and move around to change, basically change the layout of your board whenever you play a game. Yeah, I think the idea is that ideal would be to have a combination of both. So have have your flat surface, and you can start off with just like the flocked rug. Or, yeah. But eventually you want that to be a flat modular area that you can sort of have some, maybe some chasms or some rivers or some lava flows or some something flat and you can move that around and change it so your river's going different angles and then you have things like your hills and your rocks and your buildings and that uh, floating island stuff so you can spread that around where you like it so then you've got yeah. maximum flexibility and your board looks great yeah i think if you're going to go for the fully sculpted say four by four i think that would work ideally for uh, certain scenarios yes because yeah, I, I, jeremy i, I know yeah. you have a fully sculpted battle of bywater board which yes. looks amazing yeah, that's a two foot by three foot board. That's um, when when I particularly like a scenario that's particularly iconic, I will I will sculpt the full board for it. But even then, it's got some some modular sort of transport elements to it, so the trees aren't attached to that one. And they're ones that I can usually just throw in the back of the car and bring along to a tournament if we have some downtime or a club day or someone's house and just play them for whatever. Mm. But they do take a bit more planning and they do take up space in the garage because. The the bywater board is great. It's good fun, but I can't use it for a lot of other things. Mm. It's for bywater only, and maybe a display board for an upcoming tournament. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> tipping, t- tipping your hand a bit there, Jeremy. But um, well, I'm backing you, not being able to get this out in time. Oh, uh, I feel that would be a very safe assumption. Yep. <laughs> uh, I'll be struggling to get the pilot out soon. I think as well. Oh, I should be able to get that out within the week. I hope. Hope. Fingers crossed. Touch wood. 
Anyway. <laughs> well, that's pretty much all we've sort of, um, unless you guys got something else that you sort of want to uh, sort of add to sort of the scenario, terrain making sort of stuff that we've sort of just talked about. But uh, uh, One thing I will say about scenarios, yep. which I'm uh, actually quite like that uh, the direction GW was taken, is that it says the notable heroes and then says a certain amount of points of warbands. It doesn't actually list oh, yeah. participants in um, on a model-wide so sort of, model basis. Yeah. I do like the fact that it has points, but I would also like the old style world that has points and a list of yeah. uh, recommended well, participants. Mm. Well, actually, I'll, I'll just quickly open that up a, a bit more. Do you think that having points matches in scenarios is a good thing or a bad thing? I think it can be good and can be bad. It can make it easier for people to get into it. Yep. But at the same time, I personally prefer the set participants. I, th- I think it's... It's, it gives you something to really work with and to think about and to nut out, I guess. Uh, yeah, Jeremy? It, 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 oh, sorry. Thank you, Tina. I think, ideally, the, the ones that have both are, are a great idea to get into them. But what you can have with the points matches, people designing army lists to win a scenario. And yeah. that's not always what you want to achieve. Ideally, you want a very close game with lots of choices on both sides and both people feel like invested in the outcome of it. When you get someone who decides that they're a certain troop type is going to, to do better than others and they say make an army list all of that or have the the twenty berserker or a Kai army or something something silly that doesn't quite fit the story. That yeah. um, that concerns me. So I think as long as you're trying to to recreate the story, I don't think it's a problem. And we change scenarios as well. So oftentimes you get the recommended participants and we might say, this is a little bit too easy for the good side. Let's either make it harder for them, let's give them another obstacle, let's yeah. make their victory conditions tougher, or let's add more evil models there. So we can you can change that and feel free to do that. Don't don't feel mm. strictly tied into it. Write your own scenarios, make your own scenarios, use the collection you have. It it it's your game. It doesn't really matter. Yeah, no, that is that is very true. I know um we were talking about it earlier in the previous podcast. Battles out of Bond. In the movie we had Bol chasing down the, the dwarves and we played it as written in the book with Azog and then we said, What about Bol? What would he do differently? And, and we did. We, we changed it up and played with Bolg, and it was just as fun. But it gave a couple of different choices. All right, so uh, thanks for uh, your opinions and stuff on that, guys. Um, we're going to take a short break, and we'll come back with um, some rules queries in, in our sort of... Well, we haven't really come up with a name for that segment yet, have we? Rules queries? Rules, qu- rules <laughs> queries? We're just gonna Isn't this it... something to talk about in the break? Just cut it off and then... <laughs> Probably. We may edit this out or or whatever. But uh, thank you guys for coming. Thank you very much. We'll we'll be back. And we're back again, ladies and gentlemen, for our rules queries uh, discussion. Um, Basically, we have pulled a bunch of rules queries from uh, our friends, from uh, Facebook pages and forums and stuff. And we've sort of compiled a short list of some of the more interesting ones or the ones that we've seen a little bit more more ambiguity with and people use a little bit more often in our tournaments and stuff. Matt, you have the list in front of us, in in front of you. Um, (laughs) What's our first question of the day? All right, getting straight into it. Question number one. Elendil gets a free heroic combat every turn. As a model can only benefit from one heroic action each phase, it would therefore mean Elendil would be incapable of calling heroic strikes or taking part in other heroes' heroic actions in the fight phase. Is this true? Yeah. Yeah, um, <laughs> anyone want to field this one? Jeremy, you've got your hand up there. Yeah, I do. I'm going to use the, the kid method. Um, 
I think heroics are, are optional. You don't have to call them if you don't wish to. There'll be times when you wouldn't call them, i.e. when you're not in combat at all. So I think that one is, he gets the option to call it one without expending a point of might a turn. I think he could call a heroic strike, um, not that you'd really want to, but then you wouldn't get to do the, the heroic combat because yeah. you can only do no, that's fair enough. immediately um, cancel any, any possibility of a heroic combat. Um, I think I'm on the same point there. I think the only time really you'd be looking at calling a, a strike or something is if something else is in combat with you that's high fight and you're really scared of it. Yeah, I, th- I think you guys are absolutely correct. Yep. I'm pretty sure it does say in those rules, and I'll just get Tien into quick... Uh, well, yeah, I'll no, look it up. It, it, it does say <laughs> that uh, Elendil... Passing books around the table. Can, he yeah. can fight a heroic combat in the fight phase without expending Yeah, can. That's right. Can doesn't mean does the, have to. That is the important word yeah. there. So you can choose to spend... Take the heroic combat for free, or you can decide, yeah, no, actually, I'm going to strike up. As another example, uh, Dwarven shield bearers do not get the choice. They have to do that. They have to. I they have must a immediately call a free heroic combat, and if they can, move into the uh, the hero they're protecting's combat. Yep. yep. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's fair enough. Yeah, I will say that you cannot benefit from a heroic combat and a heroic strike in the same yes. turn. Yes. That that's one thing that we really should stress, guys. And I suppose I suppose we should probably go into a bit with the order of calling actions. You, I know, of in the past, I've had to correct a couple of people at tournaments and even just in friendly games as well. You don't call actions, be it marches, channels, move strikes, during the phase. You must call them at the start of the phase. So at the start of the move phase, before any person has moved, you need to call your actions and spend your point of mind. Yeah, that does include heroic channels and uh, heroic marches. Yeah, you can't just go, I'm going to cast Sorceress Blast, but I'm going to channel it now. Well, no, you haven't spent your point of mind at the start of the phase. Basically, the reason why this is important is it allows your opponent basically to get a look. You have to tip your hand a bit to basically say, I'm calling a channel. Now, it doesn't necessarily mean you know exactly, they know exactly what spell you're, you're looking at casting. The answer is fury. It's always fury. <laughs> <laughs> but it means that you get the, the knowledge of they're calling a march because it's very important to work out which heroes are calling actions at the start of the phase so that you can work out the order as well because that order also it comes into a big... Can, some really interesting things can happen with that. Yeah, it, it, Especially also, in the combat phase when you've got multiple strikes and heroic actions going off. Even in the move phase as well, if you think yeah. about it, you, you can't benefit from a heroic move and a heroic channel in the same turn. Correct. Yeah, so you've got to be really careful about what order you're doing those things. Mm. And, yeah. and, and that makes a big difference when you're doing the first turn march, when you're trying yeah. to really leg it across the board. You either leave your shaman behind or you, yeah, you, you slow it down. Yeah, it also can lead into a interesting bluffing game between uh, you and your opponent. I know we've had a few of those, TNN, where we've tried to psych our opponents out with spells. I am immune to your tricks. <laughs> I've um I've called heroic strikes with Aragorn when he's well and truly out of combat, just to to take up a space <laughs> in the thing. Yeah, because it's not going to cost me anything. He's got the the. And, and just on that as well, life. also remember, guys, um, the person without priority has to be the one that calls the first action. So very important. Very, that's hugely important because if that person without priority goes, I don't want to call an action, your opponent then doesn't... You don't get a ch- second chance to say, no, I do want to call an action if your opponent calls one. Basically, if you don't have priority, you go, you look at the table and go, do I need to call your actions? If yes, call your actions. If no, you can't call any more for the rest of the turn and your opponent can call whatever ones they want in whatever order. So just be really mindful of that, guys, because it can catch you off guard. Just another one of those advantages of having priority. Yep. Yeah. 
as well, I suppose uh, another thing that I've noticed, uh, just just sort of thinking about this sort of order thing, standfasts. Standfasts have the ha, can sometimes we see the similar problem with someone taking courage tests with the hero, measuring those within the six inches of the hero, and then just moving everything. Yeah. It's not how standfasts That's work. That's not correct. No, the standfast occurs at the end of the hero's move. Correct. Well, is it? No, it's the start Sorry. of a warrior's move. That's right. Yes. <laughs> yes. So. <laughs> Matt, do you want to sort of uh, okay, explain to, this to, one? To elaborate on that. Was this on our list? Sort uh, of. Sort of, yeah. We, we ha- we've got it in there <laughs> as of. something we might discuss. So here we go. <laughs> <laughs> once, this wasn't okay, planned at all. Once the hero has moved, you then move your warriors. Now, any warriors that are within uh, six inches, or in some cases 12 inches, of the hero calling the stand fast, yep. then don't have to take the courage check. And line of sight's important as well here. You yes, you have to, have to be able to see the hero calling the yep. stand fast. So the reason why this is important is it means that you can't have your hero getting too far away from your troops, but it also means your hero can go save your troops. If you've got a guy who's eight inches away from a, a hero that has a stand fast, and you're like, damn, I'm out of range of stand fast. Well, actually, no. You can move your hero within six, elect to move your uh, warrior's model, and then because he's now within six, he gets to move without taking that courage check. And you get some really funny situations where in the barrel scenario, I got Fimble past my courage test, jumped on a barrel, um, and that was part of a, her- a heroic move. Uh, so, yeah. And then the barrel travelled down the river and suddenly a whole bunch of orcs were within a standfast range of him, which yeah. he would have never been able to travel to. <laughs> so definitely take advantage of that when you can and have a good laugh yeah. when you get funny situations like that. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Basically, the moral of the story is order is very important. All right, Matt, what have we got for our second query? Question number two. Now, this is one we got straight from the Facebook page, ripped straight from there. The rules state that you don't have to replace a mounted model with a model on foot. You can simply mark the mounted model to show that the mount has been slain. Would people find this acceptable in tournaments? What do you guys think? Tiernan? Not really. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's more of if you don't have the foot model, then you can do this because, you know, otherwise the model's dead. But, yeah, it, it you can abuse it so easily, and that's the reason I don't like it. Yeah, the problem I have with it is that it is straight from the rule. You can't really argue against it because they're yeah. allowed to do that. But I just think it's it's outside the spirit of the game, and I just mm. really don't like it. I, don't, I, I suppose it, wouldn't it, be happy with people. I suppose that. it irks us a little bit more because we're... we're, we're it's pretty safe to say that everyone here at the table is a veteran of the game. We've been playing it for, some of us, for 10, 10 or more years. We've sort of come into the game where we've seen every change, and one of the old changes was you have to replace a model with the model on foot, a cavern model with the model on foot, if they get slain. So when we see a rule where, oh, you can just put a counter next to it and it's all, it's all good, it sort of goes, well, no, because you're on a different base size now, and that changes things. It changes dynamics and the way things move. Yeah, some people will say that. Oh, you know, the bases are fairly similar, but um, you know, they're fairly similar, so it's not that much of an issue. It in casual games, it's you know, it's fine if you and your opponent agree, but in tournaments, as I said, you can abuse it. And how so? How can it be abused? You can block things and the larger base size you can use that for uh, positioning advantages particularly a cavalry model that had a shield can now shield with that larger base size and if they're a higher defense can block off an area and it's it's kind of just a a bit not on one other thing I I just realized just now is sorceress blast and hurl 
you're on a bigger yeah. base, it means you're going to clip a lot more models with a bigger base. It's much easier. Like if you have a cavalry model thrown through a rank, you're going to hit. So that's two that is a disadvantage work. of it, and I'm not yeah. saying there's not disadvantages, but you can potentially abuse it, which is yeah. you know, and you know, I'm I'm just imagining a worst case scenario where someone's actually brought the foot models along and decides at the time, oh, you know what, it's more of an advantage just to mark the bases. I'm not going to use the foot yeah. models, and that's I, totally not on. I think look. I think we all agree that we prefer to replace it, but if it's in the rules, I think it's something a tournament organizer has to say in their tournament pack ahead of yeah. time or say, yeah. I expect you to replace the models. And Because I, I think anytime you change the rules, you need to make it very clear to all the people. Yes, I think it's, it's a to and fro. It can be an advantage. It can be a disadvantage. But it's probably not really part of the game that you want to be a choice. And in a tournament, you need things to be as clear as possible. And it's not clear if, if half your models on horse are actually on horse and half them aren't. And yeah. and that becomes very confusing. And you're likely to forget halfway through the game which, which riders of Rohan are still on their horses and which ones are on foot. Yeah, yeah. no, that's that's very true. And I, th- I think you pretty much hit the nail on the head there, Jeremy. If any TOs out there, make sure you explain that in your players' pack. Make sure you make it really clear and defined. But I guess in friendly games, it really doesn't make a huge difference. You're there to have fun enjoy a game with your mates. So in friendlies, I can't see a problem with it. I don't have an issue with it. But when it comes to a tournament, I think you really need to really make a distinction. It needs yeah. to be needs to make a distinction. In, in tournaments, everyone uh, is playing to win, generally. So, yeah, uh, yeah those uh, little things do matter. Yeah. The grey areas are not a, a place for tournaments. Preferably. Well, with, with the cavalry uh, sort of topic that we're on now, what's our next question? Uh, well, just as an aside... Uh, We'll talk about uh, using stats when fighting with Cav and which stats yep. you can use. So it does say in the rulebook, uh, when you're fighting with a cavalry model, you can use the fight, attacks, and strength of either the mount or the rider. Okay. Yep. And you can mix So uh, some people do get confused with this. They use either all of the stats of either the mount or the rider, or yep. they aren't quite sure just how it's meant to work. And I think it's just, it's good to make a clear distinction on this. You yep. can mix and match. Use the mix. best stats of the mount and the rider. Unless you're trying to break or something or, or not yeah. kill or the model like and then lower your strength. Yeah. It'd be really silly. Yeah. I think that probably the best principle of this is, is the good old fell beast yeah. for, for a ring yeah. rave. You would use the, the, the strength of the fell beast and you need the attacks of the fell beast because Correct. it's... Vastly superior. Except for the Witch King with Morgul Crown. Except for the yes. Witch King with Morgul Crown. No, <laughs> and you're going to use the tech. fight value of the Ringwraith because he's got the potential to call a Heroic Strike. Right. That's right. So yeah. that's that's where you yeah. mix it. Yeah. So you might use the fight of the Ringwraith with a Heroic Strike and you might use your, your yeah. strength of the, the Fell Beast when you knock him to the ground. Uh, one thing I do find a little um, sort of bit more of a grey area is when the model riding uh, the mount uh, has special rules in with regards to damage. So models like the Betrayer and um, Ring Ray, oh, the Witch King River Morgul Blade, those yeah. kind of things, as whether, or even whether uh, the hero on top can use his special strikes while using the attacks and strength of a monster he's riding. Even so, if you're um, a rider of River Sword and you faint. Yeah. So, arguably. So would, would, sorry, would, would that faint be reducing the fight value of the hero on top? But would you then use the fight value of the mount? Oh, that's a good one. I think you'd oh you'd lower the fight value of both of them for that. I think it's still yeah. one model, yeah. Yeah. and yeah. I think I think you can still mix and match. So you could Cause, use because the way I see it is and, okay. You've got two fight three models, but you're electing which one you're using. So the rider goes, okay, I'm using your fight. I'm now going to faint, but you're still lowering the fight that he's electing to use. So it, it's still that yeah. sort of. But that, that's why. I, 
what um, you know, I, I think it's meant to be, but yeah. I don't think it's overly clear. Maybe not. Maybe not. But that's in all rule sets, you're going to get some funny things like that. And I think, I think you'll spot when people are really, really trying to to get their advantage. That sounds too good to me. Where you can faint <laughs> with a model yeah. and not get any disadvantage for that yeah. fainting. Yeah. When you've got a multiple fight, you've worked hard to get two models in the fight, so I can understand that. But when yeah, that you've got your ring ray fainting and your fell beast using his fight value. I think you're, you're sort yeah. of pushing the boundaries just a little bit. In the case of two-handed weapons or lances, the way I'd see it is you probably could use the strength of the mount for that. Like, yeah, if you have as like it's a, a single model, you can just use yeah, that strength. Um, with if the you bonuses. have like a I don't know a strength three um, rider on a strength four mount and you have a lance, yeah, you can grab the strength four from the mount and lance with that as well. Yeah. I think the only example I can think of at this point is Azog. Uh, and even then, I think they're both straight five. No, yeah, yeah, there, there is the Witch King with his flail when he's on the Felds. Ah, oh, that yeah, is true. And yeah. I think Riv Hunter... Oh, wait, no. Wags they're straight both straight well. four, yeah, but, but yes, it's, I always spend about half an hour trying to decide which one to use and yeah. just yeah. delay the game a bit. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's that. Oh, sorry, but there was one thing we didn't say with regards to special weapons, like Morgul Blades. Ah, uh, yes. There is... Um, I suppose this is uh, just a, a, a quick... Probably won't go into this too much... Check the FAQ, guys, because there is a thing with the FAQ for the Witch King's Morgul Blade. He has to use his own strength and his own sort of stats to use the Morgul Blade. I won't go into too much detail about it, but check the FAQs. They're available on Games Workshop's website under the Shrine of Knowledge. Very easy to find. If you guys have any problems, just send us an email and we'll send you a quick link to it. And yeah, really check the FAQs because there's a lot of interesting sort of little catches, if you will. Yeah, I think the main one for me was the Warriors of the Dead not being able to use their special strikes. Yeah. And Spectres can. Yeah, that was yeah. a bit <laughs> kind of odd. odd. Yeah, anyway. sometimes they're inconsistent. They're probably written by more than one person, and yeah. they yeah. probably haven't checked for internal consistencies. So when that's the case, just roll your eyes and make a face <laughs> at the person across the side of your table and then just keep going on with it. Yeah. One last thing, though. Uh, Riv, regards to heroes who have a special rule when they s- strike. So I'm thinking the Betrayer and his Bane of Kings when he's on the Fell Beast. I believe I've... he can use the Fell Beast's strength and re-roll to wound. Yes, yeah, I believe as, so. as it's a single model, that, that special works for the entire model. So yep. yeah, I, I think I agree with Trevor. Yep. It's, it's one model still. Like yep. You've got yeah. a lot more options, but you're still one model. So hmm. when in doubt, a cavalry model is one model. So just yep. use the best of the stats, That's pick the him out, and, it, yeah. and keep all the rules there, whether they're positive or negative, just maintain that. Yeah. Uh, next question. On our next question, and continuing on uh, the topic of cavalry, we've got the question: A wag rider loses combat, and its enemy inflicts a wound from their strike. Do they have to allocate that wound to the rider or the mount? Now, the way this one would work is you do have to decide who you're striking at before you make that strike. It's, and yes. it's very important. Yeah. You, as a general rule of thumb, just generally across anything, if you're in a multiple combat, even. You need to declare who you're rolling at. So you, if you have three dice in your pool, you don't roll all those three dice and then put the dice on whoever. you you got to go, right, this dice at this guy, roll. This guy at this guy, roll. And the same applies with mounts. If you've got one attack, you need to make the choice of, do I hit the rider or do I hit the mount? You need to make that choice before you roll. Yeah. So you get the choice for, for yeah. what you strike at. If you win the fight, it's your right to poke your sword into a fell beast or to a ring wraith or to a horse or to a wag or to the orc whatever. On top, yeah, yeah that, that's your choice. Sometimes with the dice rolls, you might, against my 
my hunter orcs, people it's five plus to wound the, the rider or the wag most of the time anyway. So I have no problem with people pick up four dice that they strike with and just tell me the first kill is going to be on the rider, the second yeah. kill is going to be on the wag. So and that, that's that's absolutely fine. But if it was, say, a six plus to kill the rider and a five plus to kill the, the horse or wag, then you, you've got to do them separately because you yeah. might you don't know the order of them. Yes. So that's a matter of game awareness. One, yeah. if, if you know you're wounding them on the same values, you can just roll your, all your dice at once. Yeah. So, sometimes you make sure you tell your opponent any remainders. Like I've seen it with shooting as well. You pick up them. It's just a quick on quick in the game. You pick up ten dice and go. I'm shooting at this guy first. If he dies, and that guy, then if he dies, and that guy. And you basically go through and you do that that way. So long as you're clear and can and consistent with your rolling and telling your opponent what you're rolling for and in what order and stuff like that, most people don't have an issue. Occasionally you do just pick up and roll the dice and forget and go, oh god, I, I forgot to uh, declare her I was uh, rolling at. In which case, I think trying to randomize it works. You know, saying beforehand, if I forget to say something, then, you know, I, I'm attacking the rider rather than the mount. Yeah. That's my favorite way of doing it. I have multiple colored dice, and I'll say at the start of the game, Black dice are always fainting. Red dice are always going to be striking at the rider. Yeah. Things like that. And then I've got the fallback to unless I've I've sort of re-established those rules before a fight, we can we're both aware of it as well. So yeah. I might pick up four of three dice and make two at the rider, one at the the horse, and that way both myself and my opponent know. And as long as we both know, it's all fine. Yeah. So things like red dice are always fainting. Just calling yep. that at the start of the game and just yep. using that uh, method throughout the game can just yep. speed things up. Yep. Just because of that as well, um, just something you're curious. If you do strike at the rider and you have like a wag or something underneath, make sure you take the courage test as well. Yeah. That That's really, really important. Like, yeah. really important that you do yeah, take that courage I test. I always forget to take courage tests for the wags because I'm uh, too used to using horses. <laughs> mm, and make sure you add your modifiers as well. So if you have a warhorn or something like that. Or, or, or a druzag. <laughs> <laughs> actually, speaking of druzag, actually, uh, another question. No, let's just... not speak of druzag. <laughs> Next. <laughs> just before you go on to that, um, do remember that once you've killed the rider, if they pass their courage check, you can allocate the rest of the hits that you've got in that combat onto that wag. Yeah. So it may be courageous, but it might still be dead. <laughs> <laughs> yep. This is sort of one that's sort of popped up a bit recently as well. Is the whole Druzag Wag Rider dismount thing with the model count and breaking? That thing. Did, did you want to explain that a little bit more for those um, of us who? Uh, and I can um, answer that because I'm, that's I'm, easy. Who don't, who don't know. <laughs> what is the actual? I'll try. I'll try and explain this. Basically, Druzag is aware he his fury affects Wags. So if you dismount an orc of a wag rider, the wag will automatically pass its courage test. Now, the ambiguity that comes from this is now, you've now got two models on the table. What happens to your breakpoint? And people have been saying, oh no, breakpoint changes and it goes up and down. But that's not really the case. Now, Jeremy, you've obviously played hunter orcs and used this dismount trick. Although you take the it's action. not a trick. I <laughs> <laughs> you've used the dismount trick. Before, I have so you have before, you have a pretty good grasp. What what actually happens when you dismount a orc off a wag? Okay. Firstly, the breakpoint doesn't change the game. You establish that at the start of the game, and that's that's a solid goal. Yeah. The way you reach breakpoint is the amount of kills you do at the start of your turn. You've got a cavalry model, so an orc on a wag. Or, yeah. Um, is is the example we're using here? That's one model. Now, if that a whole model gets removed, say you shoot that model and it's both the rider and the wag are killed or the wag runs away, that's a kill. Um, yep. If they split, 
they become two models. So at that point, they turn into the two models. Now, if you're dismounting, you see if the, the wag survives, there's still the cavalry model. If he does not survive, all you do is replace it with a, the foot model, yeah. and that's the same model. It's not a kill. It's just the same model that's slightly altered its profile, its movement, its, yeah. its skill. It's all that sort of stuff there. So you dismount. You take the test as a cavalry model. So you don't yep. take the test as a wag. You don't become a wag. You take the test as a cavalry model, which means that you wouldn't be affected by Drew's eggs. Fury That's a that. really good point that I was just about to bring up. If you read his actual spell, it says, This works exactly as described for Fury in the main rules manual, except its effects apply to, in brackets, unridden wags. Now, this is, this is the point that I sort of... It sort of adds the ambiguity to it. Yeah. When your orc dismounts, he jumps off the wag. The wag is now unridden. So wags... Yeah, but so the, the process, you do the process as you do the action. So you've declared the action as a cavalry model. You're seeing the effect of it. So then you see the effect of whether or not your warg survives. And then they're two separate models. Yeah, but wouldn't that mean the generic that. orc fury would work on it? Uh, ooh, no. Okay. It's no, a warg. No, it's the still warg, a warg. You still use yeah. the warg's courage and the orcs. But yeah, it's yeah, still I, the species warg in the rules. Yep. Yeah. I, I guess the question is when do you take that courage test for the warg? Do you take it before uh, you as, remove the model? As the um, rider gets off or after the rider gets off and then the warg goes, well, do I. Am I staying or, or going? I declare that I'm going to dismount. I take the courage test at that point and then I can see what I'm turning into. What, what What's the transition? I think one way to look at it, as Jeremy's saying, is with the word unridden. It's not just that at that point it's unwritten, it's that it has never been written. Yeah. Fair enough. Even in previous yeah. games, no, yes. I, I, <laughs> no, I can I can I can understand that as well. There Does anyone disagree? I think we all agree, don't we? I agree. Yeah, on yeah, that yeah, point. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I, if I you disagree with us, please send an email to Travis. Which will be at the end of this podcast. There'll yes, be yes. an email. Specifically to Travis, don't yeah. contact me. But if, yeah, <laughs> if you have any other opinions on this, we might be, be able to cover it again later in a later podcast as well. But one other thing with carry model as well, Jeremy, um if you shoot at a cavalry model, and you shoot at the wag, and the and the rider survives the fall. Does that alter your breakpoint? No, no. It's it's still the you'd have to you'd have to say shoot down the rider and fail the the wag's courage at that point or to to get yeah. as a kill, or shoot down both in the same. But if same a go. rider is shot out and the wag survive, is that a kill? No, no, no. If the rider shot out, you've still got a model. It's a different model. It's it looks different. It doesn't have the orc on the back. But it's still a model. Now, then, if you shoot again and kill the wag, you get the kill. Yeah. But yeah. You've, you, all you've done is basically taken a wound off the cavalry model. Yeah. And that yeah. wound has, has made it look different and, and it so, plays differently. But it doesn't, doesn't affect your kill point so, at that so point. So, basically, what we're saying here is with, with the orc wag, it's, it's effectively a, a sort of like a quasi two wound model with the ability to split it into two one wound models. And that's where the. the the number sort of, of models, the, the you, number have of models you have. Yes, yes. The number yeah. of models you can increases. Breakpoint doesn't change. Yeah. Basically means it's you got more models to shoot at, more models to kill, which means it sort of makes it a bit easier to break someone who uses this sort of dismount trick. But it means it's harder to quarter them because there's a lot of models Aside on the Aside from dismounting, that can also occur through being knocked down. Yeah. Yes, yes. And yeah. and spells and things, nature's wrath yeah. and that that sort of thing, yeah. throwing throwing a model through the cavalry models, all that yeah. sort of fun stuff. Just quickly on Drozag again. So the Bestial Fury has that unridden in brackets, and Enraged Beast has that as well. Yeah. However, his Master of the Dark Wild, which is the, uh, they can use his courage, does not have that unridden. Yes. So those uh, Wag Riders do still get that courage, the Wags. Yeah. What's his courage, by the way? His courage is base four. 
Okay, so that's that's definitely. Add, add, a, add a war horn on that, or or a drum. And there you go. You're going to be able to dismount. Yeah, uh, fairly comfortably. I, I, I just looked up the rules for uh, when you take the courage test for when you dismount, and it is uh, Jeremy exactly as you said. As soon as you declare that you're dismounting, you, you take that courage test. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for clearing that up, guys. Uh, I think we've got time for. Yeah, we've got time for one more uh, rules question. So what do we got next? Uh, this is probably the most controversial, and I know that uh, immediately Jeremy and I didn't agree on this uh, as a quick discussion before we started. The question is, if you begin your move within one inch of, at one inch away from an enemy or within one inch of an enemy model, and you have a throwing weapon, do you still suffer the negative one penalty hit, even though at the point at which you throw, you have not yet moved? Yeah, this is when you actually charge in. Yeah, and so yeah, you're charging yeah. and throwing the throwing weapon in the move yeah. phase. So your model's there, you declare a charge, you're within an inch and you go, cool, you throw a weapon, and then you complete your move. Now the question is, does that weapon have a minus one? And, uh, well, yeah, let's open it up. I reckon, no, you don't have the minus one. You haven't moved. Yeah. No, I agree with, with Travis on that. I think, yeah, I think the penalty there, it, it's probably an ambiguous one, and because the movement penalty came in later, maybe they haven't fully fleshed it out but I think the model itself hasn't moved. Um, at that point, you could actually kill the model you're going to charge, and you can elect to continue moving or not. So you could actually end up not moving at all. So I could declare that I'm charging this Warg Rider, throw my throwing weapon, kill it, and then I get to finish my remaining move. I might actually move zero inches for the turn. So now that may or may not be an advantage. It might be an advantage if I'm holding an objective or something like that, but I think you wouldn't get the, the penalty there. Uh, yeah, I, I find it just interesting. I, I think I I think I am tending toward what, what you guys say in that yes the model hasn't moved, but then it is the move phase and you I guess you could argue that you you do move to the point of being within 1 inch, but you know you haven't moved at all, but you could say I've moved 0 inches, you know, it's the move phase, so you you may have technically moved. Yeah. And yeah, I, uh, my concern with that is something like a crossbow where you, you're not allowed to move at all. If you say, I've moved zero inches, therefore yeah, I've moved... Yeah, the move phase. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, yeah. I, I'm, I'm not sure about that it's the move phase sort of logic there. I think there's going to be problems because you've got a sense of shoot phase action in the move phase, and I think we're probably probably going over that. Matt, you disagree with me, don't yeah, you? Yeah, I do disagree. I do believe that uh, whether or not you intend on continuing moving, I do believe you are in the process of moving at that point. So that is your move, and that throwing weapon is part of your move. So I do believe you do suffer the penalty. Just as a, an example, a different kind of example, if you're intending on charging something with terror, and you need to jump over a fence to get to them, so you're going to have to roll a six to actually be able to do it, you still have to take that terror check before you move at all, before you've even done anything. You could roll a one to get over that fence, you don't know yet. But you have to apply that effect even before you've started moving. So in my mind, uh, the throwing weapon is the same way. You may not move at all, but I think you do have to apply that effect before you start moving. So thoughts, mm. thoughts on that? I, was I, just... I can see it, but like, the, thing, the, the thing that I keep coming back to is, is sort of, the, sort of the, the gateway logic, I suppose. Um, you look at the rules and you go, you, and you sort of like step through the shooting process. Your shooting process is, I'm going to declare to shoot. All right, what am I shooting at? Is it a viable target? Is it in the way? So you go through that sort of step-by-step process and then you get to the movement. Have you moved this turn? Yes or no? 
It's, it's a simple yes or no question. I, uh, have you moved? Yes. I, I, completely. I, I am, Next step. I have just brought, brought up the rules for uh, throwing weapons, and it, it, it does say that uh, the model does does move as if it's uh, going to charge the enemy. So for throwing into combat, it says you do move. And when it says that you can you can shoot for you go, you know, you stop one inch away and you can shoot, it says this does include the negative one to hit penalty for moving. Oh, well, there you go. Well, we're wrong, Travis. Which page is that? Which page can is that? Can you quote that exactly, please, Tim? Uh, that is page 71 under throwing weapons. Oh, wow. Brilliant. Yeah, no, I'm in the shooting section. That's why I can't uh, A throwing weapon can be used as its bearer charges into combat. The player moves the model as if it were going to charge the enemy. But instead of moving into base contact with his foe, he stops one inch away. He then throws the weapon at the enemy he is about to charge. This shot is resolved using the rules for shooting, including the negative one to hit penalty for moving, even though this takes place in the move phase. Well, yeah, I think yeah. the okay. books... It, you, yeah. you could then argue that the fact that the shot is resolved using the rules for shooting. It says yeah. including the, the penalty. Think, now, that's yeah. that's a tricky one because it could just say that don't ignore that penalty totally. But I think it probably needs something like including the include the penalty if applicable. And if it said yeah. something like that, yeah. I think yeah. my initial argument probably wouldn't be correct. But because it doesn't say because that... Because it just specifically says including that penalty, I, I think it's fair I to think say you have to include that yeah. penalty and yeah. and... yeah. That's it. Yeah, oh, so, well, cool. I've so I got one right. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe. Someone sent Travis an email. And, uh, it is still a bit of a grey yeah, area. Yeah, it's so. still a bit of a grey area, but from, from our perspective here at the podcast, yes, if you throw a throwing weapon in the movement phase, you will get the minus one, even if you haven't moved. I suppose a little quick question as well. Could you, if you, and there's only one model in the game that can do this, and that's um, uh, Corsair Captain with crossbow. Could the Corsair Captain in the movement phase throw his throwing weapon at someone, kill that person with a throwing weapon, not move, and then shoot his crossbow. I'm pretty sure you can't shoot twice in the same turn. But, yes, if we do say that, um, yes, if you're throwing a throwing weapon in the movement phase, you are moving, then he won't be able to fire his crossbow. That's right. So, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. It might not matter at all if you can't shoot thought, twice in the same turn, yeah. but... Well, that's all we have time for today, unfortunately. Uh, any leftover questions that we do have, we'll probably carry over and uh, do at a later podcast. But um, thank you once again, Jeremy, for coming. Thank you. Uh, Matt. Cheers. And Tiernan, uh, any last uh, words, guys? No, not really. <laughs> <laughs> well, I thought I'd just throw it up if you had something quirky to say. Or whatever. Play the game, and, and don't be afraid if some of the rules are a little bit quirky. If your group all agrees to play it one way, just play it that way, yeah. because... The rules have changed multiple times in the time that we've been playing. And, yeah. and sometimes, like when we're playing a scenario, we'll just omit rules. We'll say, this is silly. It's going to, yeah, it's going yeah. to going to affect our game. It's not going to add to the enjoyment at all. If that's the case, just remove some of the rules. So if, you, if you, your group has a problem with it, don't be afraid to change it. Just make that clear if you're ever playing with people outside your group. Yeah. Yep. So keep yeah, it as simple definitely. as possible. Yeah. And I suppose on that as well, if you're at a tournament and you're having a discussion with your opponent where you just can't agree on a rule, don't be afraid to call the TO. That's what the TO's there to do. He's there to answer those sort of questions. So, yeah, don't be afraid to call the TO. Well, once again, guys, thank you for coming. Uh, this has been episode one of the podcast, and uh, we'll hope to hear you all again later on. Cheers, and remember, trap wins a game. Traps. Yeah. I've already messed it up. <laughs> just edit that part out. Like, yeah, just, just, just edit that part. <laughs> you don't have to do that and remember. <laughs> I suppose I'll, I'll try that again. Take two. Take two. And remember... Traps win games. Don't use them against me, please.